Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Сегодня вступает Привет, в силу это Навальный. В Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... Годом вас. С новым веком. How do you sanction a problem like Russia? For nearly a decade, the United States and its allies have been levying sanctions against Moscow in an effort to deter its revanchist behavior and contain its malign influence activities. Over this period, Western policymakers and analysts have had vigorous debates about what constitutes the most effective sanctions policy. Are individual sanctions effective? Or should we be focusing on sectoral sanctions that focus on entire sectors of the economy? Have sanctions achieved their intended policy objectives? And what can be done to make them more effective? Today, we'll speak to both the author of an important new report on sanctions policy, who's been deeply involved in this debate, and with somebody who was one of the architects of U.S. sanctions policy in the administration of President Barack Obama. So how do you sanction a problem like Russia? Stick around to find out. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation and head of the Underminers.info, a research project on post-Soviet kleptocracy, and most importantly, the author of a new report, which Kremlin garks should be sanctioned by the Biden administration. Welcome back to the podcast, Ilya. It's great to see you again. Uh, good to be here, uh, Brian. Good to have you. Congratulations on the report. And also joining us from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., is Josh Rudolph, fellow for malign influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who also served at the IMF, U.S. Treasury Department, after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author of the recent report, Covert Foreign Money. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Brian, Ilya, and thrilled to see you both back in the vertical. It's great to be in the vertical. Um, so, Ilya, first of all, as I said, congratulations on an important and very timely report. You you do a couple of interesting things here. First, you create a scheme to determine which individuals should be the top candidates for sanctions. And these include proximity to Vladimir Putin and to other sanctioned individuals, the funding of defense and strategic exports of the Russian Federation, efforts to undermine Western institutions, interestingly, support for Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko. I found that interesting and, and encouraging since I do a lot of work on Belarus and involvement in disinformation campaigns against the West. You also introduce a brand new term into our lexicon, the term of the Kremlin Gark, uh, obviously combining Kremlin and oligarch. Um, so uh, give our listeners your executive summary of this report. Why did you decide to write it and what exactly is a Kremlin Gark? First of all, thank you for kind words and for uh, inviting here. So the report is, uh, I've been following um, oligarchs and uh, what the U.S. can do uh, about uh, Russian subversive activity for many years now. So this is not the first report about uh, my suggestions for sanctions. But uh, now I think is the uh, best time to actually achieve something with this, with the Biden administration controlling both uh, chambers in Congress and, you know, having to react to multiple aggressions from Russia, or hacking, interference in elections, uh, 
bounties on U.S. soldiers in uh, Afghanistan, poisoning of Navalny, and so on. I mean, the list is uh, endless. So now the new administration is reviewing its options, and I just uh, I'm trying to be helpful. So uh, previously, I saw that uh, both uh, Obama and Trump administrations actually had trouble distinguishing between different oligarchs and uh, deciding which of them to put uh, on sanctions list. There were internal debates with this Kremlin list, so-called Kremlin list in Mm -hmm. 2018. They just put 200 officials and oligarchs as a warning. Uh, But in reality, they only sanctioned like uh, two real oligarchs outside of Putin's circle, and then Mm -hmm. just few people in Putin's circle who never travel outside of Russia or don't travel much. And with the third oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, they had to step back because uh, there was a pushback uh, in his support from some of the uh, counterparts uh, in uh, the metals industry that he works in. They wanted him back. Uh, at least they wanted his Russell company back. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, the previous administration sort of burnt its fingers with that uh, sanction. And now they, in my view, are unlikely to go after big fish like Usmanov mm-hmm. and Abramovich. So these two big oligarchs, They've been on everyone's lists for, you know, suggested for sanctions for, for a long time. And I'm all for it. I'm not arguing. Uh, but my report uh, is basically looking at low-hanging fruit, in my view, of who are doing the biggest subversion and undermining of the rule of law against the West. And at the same time, who are sanctionable, if I can use that term. Also, I want to uh, introduce the term Kremligarch instead of oligarch. Oligarch is actually a term very useful to oligarchs themselves. They, it sort of creates a fake sense of some plurality in Russia, as if they're still these wealthy tycoons, that, as if they're still independent from Putin somehow, to some extent, that they can control their wealth. I strongly believe there is no independent big business mm-hmm. in Russia at all. And the, the main business is to have tax favors or other favors from the Kremlin and to do to have uh, loyal state contracts with the Kremlin. And um, these people should be uh, really termed differently. I suggest Kremligars uh, to show that all of their wealth and power comes from Putin and Kremlin. So they're uh, effectively it, appointed and not, uh, they've been appointed oligarchs effectively. Uh, they're, they're all, they, some of them came to, to this wealth before Putin, like Friedman and Arvin and even, um, you know, some other characters. But they totally depend. They're on the hook. They can be compromised. They can be forced. Uh, their interests and their uh, background is still in Russia. And even if they live in London and, and have all these assets now in the West, there is still enough for Russian security to uh, bring them to uh, obedience. And that's my one of my big points in the report. Basically, what I'm looking at is how exactly they are acting against the West. It's a partly educational, partly recommendational duty that I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. So some of these names are not even you know known well in the West. So Andrei Bokriev and Iskander Mahmudov, they are huge. They mm-hmm. run, for example, one of the biggest train and machine building uh, consortiums in Russia called Transmash Holding. They recently tried to buy a big asset in Norway, uh, which mm-hmm. at the last minute was stopped. It was called Bergen Engines, part of Rolls-Royce, and it had a dual um, civil and military use, really. And if it was sold to them, it would create national security implications, not just for Norway, but for NATO. 
so these names are not known, but for example, these two guys, they were helping uh, Putin's friends to avoid US sanctions. And so I look at uh, Dmitry Rybalov, who in my view is about to uh, help uh, avoid uh, US sanctions by trying to get uh, so-called free ports, basically this secure customs locations around the world uh, that where Putin could trade diamonds and gold mm-hmm. without, uh, uh, you know, US Treasury seeing those uh, transactions. So I'm just educating on some of these interesting latest developments uh, about uh, these people. But at the same time, I basically want to widen the list of people who that we discuss and to present a better low-hanging fruits that can actually be sanctioned by U.S. Treasury. Let's bring Josh in here because, Josh, you worked, as I said, you worked on sanctions policy in the Obama White House. You got extensive policy experience. What was your reaction to this report? Well, I had two reactions. First, you know, as expected from Ilya, this is the best research I've seen on how a handful of Russian oligarchs or Kremlin garks are, are um, you know, they, they use corruption, malign influence to facilitate Putin's infrastructure of, of harmful activities abroad. And, and I mean, Ilya, you document in such terrific detail, like w- what's known about each of them, how they've stolen their money, how they fund Russian defense and disinfo infrastructure and how they abuse Western legal systems and and evade sanctions. The list, as you know, goes on and on. And it's it's critical, I can tell you, for the U.S. government to have this degree of of detail to get it started, give it a starting place to sense about its evidentiary packages for future sanctions. There aren't enough detailed reports laying it out like this, more than just an op-ed and more than just you know, like you said, focusing on the very top-notch Abramovich or Usmanov types, but the folks who are also similarly important do just as much harmful activity, but might not be the, like you said, low-hanging fruit. You do it really well. And it's also a gripping read, so everyone should check it out. With regards to the, the policy implications for whether the United States should now pull the trigger and sanction these guys, I think the report provides necessary evidence, uh, m- maybe not sufficient argumentation there. So like, I see this research as very useful for the development of escalatory options, um, which are you know essential for deterrence, rather than a case to now uh, go out and sanction uh, all these guys right now. So I don't know, maybe this will be an interesting conversation because we may have a different kind of perspective on the purpose of sanctions, you'll have to tell me, but from my perspective, it's not a police force or a judicial system. It's not meant to punish bad activity as a, you know, as a matter of justice. It's meant to change future behavior. Now, those things can certainly overlap because if you're not strong in response to past aggression, then you can expect more of it in the future. Like Lenin said, you probe with bayonets and if you encounter mush proceed, if you encounter steel, withdraw, these are good steely options that this work is helping develop. But I'm not, yeah, I'm not convinced that sanction them all right now would help prevent Putin from, for example, in, you know, invading Ukraine again, killing Navalny, you know, continuing with all of the other malign activities that these Kremlin garks get up to. Yeah, I think it would probably be more likely to provoke Putin, which is sometimes something that you have to do. But yeah, we shouldn't be doing it mainly because it feels good as a matter of justice. Ilya, what do you think the purpose of sanctions is? Because I well, just Josh spelled out what he thought, and I'm curious just to get that on the table. 
It's a, it's a great uh, question and debate. And actually, I, I started to look at it in my previous report in 2018, where I also discussed specific uh, oligarchs for sanctions. Actually, the West, in my view, has several layers of reaction in terms of sanctions. The first one is just to show some kind of reaction to uh, yet another malign activity by Putin, just holding hands, you know, uh, symbolic, which many of the sanctions were just symbolic. Second level is they are not going to change the policy by Putin, but they at least will cut his resources to continue with the current aggressive policy. Next stage is we're going to change his policy. Sometimes the ultimate goal of sanctions is regime change. Mm-hmm. And I mean, US would not admit it, but I think sometimes in the past it was a goal for some sanctions. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me where the current administration is, I think they are between symbolic to let's reduce Putin's resources available for his aggressive policy. I don't think anyone can really hope to significantly change his foreign policy. We can deter him from some of the worst outrageous parts of his aggressive policy, like invading Ukraine in broad daylight. But will we stop him from doing everything else against Ukraine? Hybrid war, you know, disinfo, like these uh, GRU operations. I don't think so. So um, my task is to, I, I strongly believe the more Kremlin gas we sanction, the less resources Putin will have mm-hmm. to continue with his aggressive policy. Th- this is my approach. Now, this is interesting because, Josh, when I was listening to you, I heard that you see the main purpose of sanctions as deterrence. Is that what I was hearing? Yeah. I mean, it's to change, but to change future behavior and, and deterrence is key to mm-hmm. them. Or if the bad activity has already happened, as long as it's not murdering someone, something you can't undo, but if it's like invading Ukraine, then it could be undoing the Right, path. to reverse, to roll it back, right. Exactly. But yes, it's all about policy change. And I, and I should say, I, unsurprisingly, Ilya has, you know, as he just laid out, like more, more thoughtful kind of framework of, that's very perceptive to like, to see the different layers, as you said, of react the symbolic, the reduction of resources, the you know regime change in different programs that beyond the issue of justice, right? And the one that I'm referring to as the only important, I would say, which is uh, to change policy. The reason why there are so many different goals out there is may have to do with our bad messaging at times. I do think that good modern sanctions policy is all about changing the adversary's policy, but we don't always say it well. We don't explain that. We don't. It, it's not always done thoughtfully to point out what that is. And then you have other actors that come in, like, frankly, Congress sometimes. E- even a lot of this, the Kremlin Gark research is based on CATSA, and some a lot of the stuff in CATSA, if you read it, it sounds like matters of justice. Well, they did this, and therefore, he, this is what the punishment is going to be. So we kind of make it harder for ourselves with messaging. Mm. Josh, do you see a containment component to sanctions? Because that, if you ask me what are sanctions for or what I would like them to be for, I would say containment. I would say restricting a malign actor, in this case, Vladimir Putin's Russia, from engaging in their malign activities, to deny them the resources in order to do that, just like military containment during the Cold War did this you know, militarily. I see sanctions, um, and I, you know, truth in advertising, I'm no sanctions expert, but I, the way I see them is kind of as a, as a, to contain Russia in this kind of non-kinetic 
way in the financial sphere. Is that the wrong way to look at it? No, that is fair. And the way that Treasury folks might refer to that perhaps is defensive rather than offensive. It's meant to keep illicit finance and bad activity out of the U.S. financial system, protect the integrity of the U.S. financial system. And sanctions can play a role in that, for sure. You're right. I would argue that there are underutilized tools that can play a much stronger role, as we kind of talked about last time I was on, anti-money laundering, Mm. fighting international offshore Offshore. finance. There's a lot more to do on the, the AML area that whereas sanctions glomag sanctions i love them and they're great but they're they're always going to be a game of whack-a-mole trying to Mm. keep with this bad activity it's going to find new proxies and but yeah so we have to kind of recruit the private sector to build compliance systems right right Ilya, we were talking off mic a little bit earlier about how the similarities and differences between the the list you put together here and Alexei Navalny's list that was put out earlier. I mean, as you pointed out, he, he seemed to go after more big fish than you did. Uh, I mean, Avin and Friedman are the only real big fish I see on your list. Um, but yeah, talk a little bit about how your list is similar and different to Navalny's, if you would. So firstly, my list is complementary to all uh, other activity. My attitude we need more sanctions and the more the merrier. That's how we will really reduce Putin's uh, resources. In my view, uh, the, the biggest uh, part of containment is to reduce his resources. And that we can do through individual oligarchic sanctions. Uh, because he really uses those Kremligars for uh, various business uh, activities in the West. And that should be stopped or curtailed. So I don't write about uh, Usmanov and Abramovich for two reasons, because firstly, everyone writes about them and there is already plenty of information. And I don't, I wrote about them before, so um, the information is available. Secondly, I'm afraid they could, they are so big. They, uh, Abramovich has uh, Israeli passport now and uh, some investments, uh, not only in the UK and Israel, but elsewhere in the West. Usmanov has a lot of assets in the digital world. So there, there could be a pushback like with Deripaska and Rusal, mm. and probably U.S. Treasury is, uh, I would imagine, they are concerned uh, and they have burnt their fingers with Deripaska already. So I'm going for uh, lower hanging fruits in terms of uh, people who are easier to sanction by U.S. Treasury. Also, I'm going for people who have some, as Josh mentioned, money laundering. They've been really big in money laundering. Ruben Vardanyan, Troika Landromat. That's his company essentially is at the nexus of, uh, at the epicenter of that uh, laundromat scandal. And as I said, um, Iskander Mahmudov and Bokarev, they are not only helping to shield assets for Putin's cronies from US sanctions, they are also, Mahmudov is at the epicenter of various money laundering schemes, including with Kalashnikov USA, mm-hmm. the, the arms dealing USA. Uh, but also uh, like uh, Dmitry Rebalovlev, the guy who bought this uh, villa from Trump at a very generous price. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he has uh, an, not only luxury real estate across the US, but he has, uh, there's this story on his uh, battery company in North Carolina, where it went bankrupt several times, and then it received tax incentives and still reemerged. and many controversial stories around it. And this guy has such a controversial story in Russia with environmental uh, damage that his company Ural Kali did with support for Lukashenko. And then he really mm. under, undermined legal uh, procedures in several 
uh, European jurisdictions. And so in my view, for example, in his case, it's only the US legal system that can really withstand him. Because my report shows that with Reba Lovlev and Alpha Group, for example, uh, European uh, legal systems have failed. They have not been able to properly prosecute them, even though they have plenty of information on them. So that's another interesting as to why I choose this. I wanted to pick up on a couple of things. One is this Deripaska issue, because Ilya, you've said a couple of times correctly that the previous administration kind of got its fingers burnt when it tried to sanction Deripaska. But I mean, is there anybody more that we need to sanction more than Deripaska? And this, I guess, Josh, you would know this from inside the government better than anybody. Is Deripaska unsanctionable? Because of what we just experienced? I mean, is this guy just, does this guy have immunity? Does he have like a, a sanctions vaccine, just like I just got my COVID vaccine? No, he is in fact sanctioned, but his companies um, exactly. are not all. And yeah, we could debate that one. And, how, and I mean, it was not a well vetted target, uh, Rusal in particular. I mean, and he also does foreign direct investment in, in Kentucky. He's allowed, like you say, to get away with a lot. And I mean, he's sanctioned, but sanctioning him without sanctioning Rusal is, you know. Exactly. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. And they yeah. restructured the board in a way that apparently makes this uh, company independent from him. But in reality, many Russian experts like Vladimir Milov and myself and many others said, no, look at the how it's restructured. It's still controlled by him. Yeah, exactly. So, so you're right. And I mean, I was a bit disappointed. It was a couple of years ago now that the tragedy un unwound it in that way. In fact, some of what I'm saying about the reason for sanctions is strategic state behavior change. Not all of that is, and is one of the reasons why we have mixed messaging, not all of that is always shared fully even within the U.S. government or within Treasury. You know, with it, you know, even the very talented lawyers at OFAC are, you know, going to be focused often on the details of the capital structure and, okay, well now he's not as part of the 50% rule or, you know, we got these assurances about ownership, but he's not stopping the malign activities that you, you know, rightly lay out for these Kremlin garks in your report. So, and Brian, you're absolutely right. Sanctioning Deripaska without hitting his major companies is useless. And I actually thought that the Rusal sanctions showed an opportunity if you do a better job with it. If those targets had been vetted better, if we had kind of taken the time, because they were whipped up within the course of a month and a half after Secretary Mnuchin said unprompted in Congress, sanctions will come of this because, frankly, Treasury embarrassed itself with the release of the oligarch list at the last minute, changed it, mm. list and got hauled before Congress. Mnuchin said, oh, sanctions are coming, comes back to the shop, and he's like, wait, guys, so what sanctions are coming? And so they do this in a matter of a month and a half, which is mm. just enough time for a well-oiled interagency machine to really vet the technical elements, the supply chains, check it with the Europeans, make sure that it's going to be sustainable. But at that point, the administration did not have that. And so it was not sustainable. Right. Yeah, no, it, it bothers me for a couple of reasons. It makes us look weak. Now, um, you hear this, Ilya, I'm sure you've heard this, like, you know, they will laugh at us over things like this because it does, it makes us look ineffective and it it bothers me. But along those lines, I did want to bring something else up because, Ilya, one of your criteria was uh, support for Lukashenko. 
And yeah. this is something I've been calling for. I'm writing a, you know, a weekly column for the Atlantic Council on, on Belarus, and I focus mainly on Russian influence in Belarus and the expanding Russian footprint in Belarus uh, due to Lukashenko's isolation. And there's a lot of talk about how to sanction Belarus. In fact, I wrote a column called How Do You Sanction a Problem Like Lukashenko? And you can basically sanction Beluskali, you know, the potash producer. Yeah. And that would cripple, that would cripple the Belarusian economy. Now, Beluskali evaded the last round of U.S. sanctions because it was part of Belnefikim, um, which was sanctioned. And then they spun Beluskali out of that. So Beluskali was not sanctioned due to a little shell game. Then the U.S. lifted those or suspended those sanctions back in 2015 when Lukashenko released some political prisoners. Now there's talk of reimposing them. But the problem with sanctioning Belarus, and this is something, Ilya, I think you get to in this report that I'm actually going to use in my next column on this, is my fear. When you sanction a Belruscali, for example, which would be really effective, or, or the Mazar oil refinery, what you do is you turn that little morsel into something that a Russian oligarch can easily just gobble up. And basically, you have this unintended effect of expanding the Russian footprint in Belarus by sanctioning Belarusian companies. And I have not been able to figure out how to square that circle. My colleague at the Atlantic Council, Anders Osland, argues that if you're going to sanction Belarusian companies, you have to sanction the Russian companies that are about to buy them, too. I don't know. I wonder if either of you had any thoughts on this, because this is just something this is something I've been struggling with lately. So basically, uh, very good points on Belarus. Uh, and one of the reasons I wrote about Mikhail Guterev is just because I anticipate this uh, Biden administration to uh, initiate some actual Belarusian uh, sanctions, not just Russian sanctions. Mm. And uh, they, they should really show some support to the Belarusian opposition and how it was suppressed with iron boot, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there should be some, uh, you know, reaction and, and price for that. Obviously, we come then to uh, two sensitive topics. Do we sanction individuals or industry-level sanctions and also the timing? Yep. Mm-hmm. So the timing is crucial. If Belarus Kali was sanctioned in September, when Lukashenko was about to lose power, you know, and it was very mm. close. That would be ideal. That would help. And maybe Russians would not even have enough time to get that asset. Sanctioning Belarus Kali now is a bit, you know, delayed and wrong. So and right- Suleiman Karimov is trying to buy it right now. That's the other thing. I think there are ways to prevent uh, the takeover, especially if they want to do it in, in U.S. dollars and through, you know, uh, accounts that uh, could be controlled by the U.S. But also... I would say, uh, okay, don't go after industry and big assets, but go after cash flows and try to, like currently, Mikhail Guterif is providing this very important cash flows to Lukashenko. So maybe Mm -hmm. sanction him and these channels, not necessarily the whole industry. Uh Then later uh, see how you can, uh, you know, go further with sanctions. But all of this brings the question to the timing and also like uh, what Joshua mentioned, let's not provoke Putin, let's not provoke uh, Lukashenko. It's a, it's a sensitive dilemma. How do we reduce their resources and show that we're firm and we don't appease them? But at the same time, how do we don't provoke them? And it's a very delicate, sometimes you can't get both of these things. In my view, overall, we need bigger containment and we need more aggressive action, but maybe choose individuals and cash flows rather than whole industries. 
Okay, that's uh, that's something I want to get into in the second half when we discuss the latest round of sanctions that the Biden administration has imposed on Russia. And I know Josh has some thoughts about that because he wrote a piece about this. But I want I want to get Josh to weigh in on this Belarus piece because this, this is this is something that's been driving me crazy. I've, I've been trying to write a new piece on like what should our targets be in Belarus, and then but each one I run into, I run into this problem. Right, Josh, yeah, what no, are your it, thoughts? On? It's a well-described problem. It's a tricky nut to crack. I mean, I think you described. Well, how that you know some of the challenges. First of all, the challenge of crippling the Belarusian economy. You know that could backfire politically if it's seen as hurting the broader population. Secondly, it can backfire strategically, as you described quite well. If it then is going to push particular targets, not even just Belarus broadly, strategically, Lukashenko, but push particular targets into the into the hands of the Kremlin. And I think the Anders solution there is the right one. If you are going to do it, if you do decide strategically, politically and strategically that it's the right move for, for behavior change, um, then then you have to do what Anders suggested, which is to, to sanction the Russian buyer as well. And I mean, my third reaction is that, and this, is not, this isn't usually a popular one, there are some problems in the world that sanctions don't solve. For example, like think of a bunch of the smaller sanctions regimes from Venezuela to Myanmar who that have not had the result of behavior change. I mean, you could, we'll never know the counterfactual in any of these situations, um, but you could make that argument about Russia sanctions with regards to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, while we're going through examples, this is another controversial one that we probably shouldn't open this can of worms, but that's all kind of how I perceive Nord Stream 2 as well. Uh, a problem that's not quite right for sanctions. It's a it's a problem for diplomacy, for energy policy, providing affordable alternatives that are secure. But anyway, yeah, the the, the Belarus situation is a tricky yeah. one. Well, yeah, and the Nord Stream puts us in the very uncomfortable position of having to sanction our allies, which you really don't want to exactly. do. <laughs> that's why we're stronger than Russia because we have allies, and that, right. and we have allies because we treat them like allies. Right. And, right. I mean, I know people who are, and uh, people. Some people might want to have our heads for having this conversation. Yeah. But I, it's a, it's a pretty emotional debate over, over. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an important debate over, over Nord Stream Two. I want to continue this, but I want to bleed it into the second half, I and mean, we'll talk about the debate over individual sanctions versus sexual sanctions in the context of the Biden administration's new package. So, on that note, we'll shift gears in a few moments. We will continue our discussion and look at those latest round of sanctions levied against Russia by the Biden administration. I'd like to remind you, you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation, the head of Underminers.info, a research project on post-Soviet kleptocracy and author of the new report, which Kremlin barks should be sanctioned by the Biden administration. Also joining us from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is another old friend, Josh Rudolph, 
fellow for Malign Finance at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who also served at the IMF, the U.S. Treasury Department, after a career on Wall Street. Joss is also the author of a recent report you should read called Covert Foreign Money. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And you can access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас никто не слушает. Россия сегодня вступает сейчас. в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Делаю Я ужасно о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. So the Biden administration has just imposed a fresh round of sanctions against Russia in response to the Solar Winds Act, Russian interference in the U.S. election, and the attempted assassination of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Josh, you just wrote an insightful piece on this round of sanctions for just security. My takeaway is that you view this round of sanctions as strong but not ideal. I hope that's a fair assessment of your piece. Give us the Cliff Notes version of your argument. Yeah, um, I would even slightly flip that and say limited, but ideal. Like, so, I mean, basically, yeah, I had mixed feelings, which is why it's like a tricky way to describe it. Limited in the sense that I was disappointed that they were not stronger on sovereign debt or that they, at least the administration made it look like and talked about it as if they really sanctioned Russian sovereign debt issuance when they didn't. It was just participation in the primary, but someone else can just do that for you. Exactly. Uh, but do you think that just left room for escalation there? That was how I read it. Yeah. So, well, it does certainly leave room for us escalation. That in itself, I mean, leaving room for escalation is not always the strongest way to deter. It's kind of like saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to wear my shoes so tight because when I take them off, then it'll feel so good. Like, that's not... It's like, so... So, but just like to kind of complete the both sides of it, while they were limited and probably I thought at the time not not enough to deter Putin either from the types of activities that they were for, cyber and election interference, or the ones that are clearly front of mind for him at the moment, Ukraine and Navalny. On the other hand, they I guess they weren't strong in the sense I mean only in the sense frankly that. They were coming from a president of the United States whose words, you know, credibly back it up. So it just if you compare it to the the past administration, past administration could have done something that was technically strong but totally undermined by the president. So you don't have that now. And so it's stronger shift in posture from that perspective. But probably also more importantly for this package, it provided a lot of really useful information, attributions on cyber like solar winds, information about Kalimnik and passing information to, to Russian intel, disclosures about tradecraft around disinfo outlets and how the Russian intel services use tech companies. That was all very important and helpful. And they also provided a, a solid framework, which we, we should actually talk about more because it, it relates to the Kremlin Gark research as well, you know, it's better than Katza. It's a new executive order that kind of lays out all of the harmful foreign activities from strategic corruption to targeting journalists that the administration will be will be will be focused on. And I guess the, the last thing I'll say is that by being measured and as I say, proportionate about the severity of sanctions, they gave Putin a sort of off ramp while also positioning with this framework, positioning 
uh, the United States to be able to escalate together with allies mm. if Putin does not take the off-ramp. And now, here we are, a week or two later, and I think the administration deserves some credit for that approach because you know you guys will have views on this as well, but it seems like, at least for the moment, Putin is taking that off-ramp, at least in a, in a limited enough way that will allow him to get his summit with Biden. And that's behavior change. Now, my understanding, Josh, and I think you've been hearing the same things I've been hearing, my understanding of the administration's thinking is that they would like to transform this relationship from an unpredictable and unstable adversarial relationship to a predictable and stable adversarial relationship. I think that's where they're trying to go. The proof will be in the pudding, although I'm I'm skeptical, and Ilya, I wonder if you share my skepticism that Putin wants a stable adversarial relationship. He benefits from the chaos. That's his ace in the hole. That's his asymmetrical advantage. And so I'm, I mean, I'm wondering, like, what what are your thoughts on that, Ilya? So um, I'm actually, in a way, sharing the two uh, contradictory positions of both of you. (laughs) So I actually share, I, I think the administration should get credit. They're being granular. They're being slow. But they are showing teeth. Someone mm-hmm. at Helsinki, Paul Massaro at Helsinki Commission said very well on Twitter, the U.S. administration is in constant state of preparedness to show actions. Mm. It, it is actually good. In, uh, it's still good to show preparedness, to show some teeth. So I'm sure in the Kremlin they got a taste of what may come from these mm-hmm. sanctions. So what matters now is will really Putin take this message and start to behave more predictably and nice. And I can I wouldn't I wouldn't bet my mortgage on it. Exactly. I would not <laughs> bet even one penny on that. Uh, it's actually every US administration at the start tries to find some kind of accommodation with the Kremlin, or understanding at least. So this is far from reset, but this is like a version of reset that you can get during an aggressive uh, you know, hybrid war, which the other partner takes on you. What matters to me most is what happens next. So every time Putin proved everybody wrong and did some stupid aggressive actions more and more, and US administration and Congress had to react. So what will happen when he takes another stupid aggressive action against Ukraine, against European allies, against uh, US itself? I think that will be the moment of truth for Biden administration. It's okay to be in the state of preparedness and just showing teeth now, but I really hope they don't stay in that state Mm. when they have to act next time, which will be probably sometime this year, Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis Ukraine, vis-a-vis European allies. We now have unfolding conflicts uh, with diplomats in Europe. Uh, we yep. have GRU stories popping up in Bulgaria and Czech Republic and yep. probably soon elsewhere. We have a military so, buildup in Kaliningrad. We have an expanding Russian military footprint in Belarus. Um, the Ukraine so thing is going that, away. That U.S. preparedness will be tested very soon. And trust me, Putin will test it to the limit. He always goes to uh, uh, close to red line. Right, uh, right. When he tests things. I, mean, I also want to pick up on this sovereign debt thing because I thought this was the most important. Uh, the, this is the thing that caught my attention in this round of sanctions. And I mean, on one hand, on the positive, I say, well, at least this is showing Putin we're willing to go there, right? We're willing to go to this place. Um, this is something I've been calling for for a long time. You know, we would never have traded the sovereign debt of the Soviet Union. Why are we trading Russia's sovereign debt? But 
Josh, as somebody that worked inside government, why did they do this kind of, I mean, I don't want to call it a half measure. I, I don't think that's really fair, but why only on the primary market? I mean, you, you've been in the room when these decisions have been kind of being hashed out. What, what do you think is going on there? It could be a few different things. First of all, when this when this way of sanctioning sovereign debt was innovated, it was 2019, and those motivations were clearly very different. I think mm -hmm. Treasury was was very wary about repeating the the Rusal embarrassment, and also they clearly were not getting the requests all the way from the from the highest level to be tough. Now it could be a whole variety of things, and so it's a little bit hard to say. It could be strategic around the off-ramp, as we were mm -hmm. just describing. It depends on who you ask. I've seen quotes in the press about like White House officials saying, first of all, saying that, that the reaction, I mean, now at this point, like taking a well-deserved victory lap on the strategic, but also separately quotes saying, we were very mindful of and being careful about the role of the U.S. dollar and, you know, economic blowback, which frankly... I think is entirely misplaced with regards to sovereign debt. If you do it in this way that grandfathers existing securities, the, the Russian debt market is, it's not very big. It's like less than 10% of GDP. And then of that, you know, US investors hold less than 10%. They've had years to prepare. So I think it could entirely be done. The last possible reason, or I guess this kind of relates to the strategic off-ramp reason, but is that by being measured in this way, by showing that we're willing to go there. Yes, it can send a chill through the markets, but it can also give the allies an on-ramp to be able to join into a sovereign debt sanction regime in a limited way that they might be mm -hmm. more comfortable with. I'm hoping we can get there with the Brits soon in particular. And that would have very powerful deterrence value, more so than just the, even better than the U.S. doing the whole thing right now would be the U.S. doing it in this limited way if we can get the allies on board, because then you're ready to ratchet it up if needed. Mm -hmm. OK, um, we're pushing up toward the end, but there is one thing I did want to get discussed, and this is this ongoing perennial debate between individual sanctions and sexual sanctions. How do you see this debate, Josh? Largely, do you? I mean, is it? Is it, I, I, to me, it's kind of like we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can do both of these things at the same time. I think. But what what are your thoughts on this this debate between sexual sanctions and individual sanctions? We can do both at the same time. Even better is to do each when warranted in different situations. They both have impact. They can both inflict real pain, and we know that not just as a economic matter, but because you can see the results. You can see the costs of the sectoral sanctions, and you can see Putin's reaction, especially to the individual sanctions. Mm -hmm. In 2014, I was surprised that Putin arguably reacted with more like ferocity to the individual group sanctioning his crony friends than sanctioning the entirety of the Russian economy. Right. Kind of shows you what he, what he values, but like after the Magnitsky sanctions, he gets so viscerally angry that he like bans r adoptions of Russian babies. You know, they, right. like it's that personal and upsetting to him. I think it's a real challenge to his power structure, kleptocratic power structure as well. So they can be very important and can be calibrated strongly if you hit companies with international ties, as we've been talking about. And, you know, with regards to like the messaging and, and hitting the population, they also send very different messages. The best thing about individual sanctions is that they hit the, the crony elites and cannot be characterized as hurting the broader 
mm. population. And I guess the last thing I'll say is really important to keep them separated. My biggest fear over the past over the past month has been that that you know with with Putin escalating against two different victims, Navalny and Ukraine, he was you know going to see whether or not there would be an opportunity for him to take out one and then avoid consequences by quote unquote de-escalating against On the other. Mm -hmm. And and the and the way to avoid that type of behavior and, and that this is a con even if seems to be de-escalating against both right now at the moment, it seems. There are always going to be different buckets of activities. There's also cyber and election interference and all the other mm. harmful line activities. The, the way to prevent Putin from playing that kind of game is to keep them separated and to have escalatory options for each one individually. I think the macro sanctions, whether it's sovereign debt or energy or financial institutions, big parts of the Russian economy are often better for state-oriented actions like you know military action in Ukraine and the individual sanctions against the oligarch against Kremlin garks is often better fit for a situation like Navalny that also just happens to fit better because that's what Navalny called for so it's mm -hmm. it, it would be valuable in that context if needed in the future and yeah again that is what the need to develop those options is why uh, Ilya's research on Kremlin garks is, is so useful and since it was so useful, we're going to give the last word of today's podcast to Ilya. Thank you, Joshua, again, for the kind of words. Uh, I agree absolutely with everything you say in, in terms of uh, calibrating uh, and playing these two parallel things. I have two, uh, there are two components for me that are crucial in terms of this debate. Firstly, we should realize that Putin is essentially sanctioning his own people when he does these uh, uh, many counter sanctions. Yeah. And he presents any sanction against either his cronies or industries in Russia as sanctions against Russia, not against Putin or Kremlin. That's uh, the game he always playing. And so some of these sanctions, uh, industry sanctions, could actually be done in a way that would not hurt Russian people more than they're hurt already. And they're not really about just Russia. They're really about stopping malign activity on Western soil. I strongly believe there should be more sanctions in the financial sector, in uh, energy, especially exports to, to, to Europe. Like mm -hmm. I actually still believe we need to sanction Nord Stream 2 because, and cybersecurity. Definitely. I mean, all these technologies, Kremlin should be curtailed in its ability to do hacking and to get equipment of, uh, in military and cybersecurity sector that could be then used against the West. Oh, export restrictions. Yeah. That's yeah. So that's point number one. Second, uh, something that Joshua mentioned before, the U.S. and allies should really step up like many, many times and they should invest into this in terms of their messaging. Mm -hmm. Even if you go after certain individuals and certain limited sectors and industries, you should really explain why you're doing this and what's the message to the Russian people so that the propaganda cannot play it as well as they're playing it now. Actually, I mean, many people in Russia realize that there are many sanctions that Putin is imposing on them, not the West, and that some of the sanctions, maybe even industry sanctions, on some of these, you know, Gazprom things in Europe or offshore accounts, they would not have effect on Russian people. And so the messaging around that would really yeah. help. And uh, I wonder why it's still so bad. Uh, after so many years of debate uh, in DC and you know allocation of new resources, this is something that is not shouldn't be that difficult. It just requires political will to, and quality personnel to, to mm -hmm. do this. So these are my two main components and uh, two cents on on this topic.
Okay, great. Well, on that note, we shall wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation, head of underminers.info, a research project on post-Soviet kleptocracy and author of the new report, which Kremlin guards should be sanctioned by the Biden administration. It's online now, and I recommend everybody reading it. Also joining us from Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. has been Josh Rudolph, fellow from Aligned Influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who served at the IMF U.S. Treasury after a career on Wall Street. Josh is also the author of a recent report you should read called Covert Foreign Money. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. It was fun and I learned a lot. Good to see you both. Let's continue this discussion in a bar since we are all three fully vaccinated. Uh, Me just a couple hours ago. Um, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Leakes is in the virtual control room. He keeps the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, which make us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes. Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a rating and review as it boosts our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.